Okay, Chelsea, what do you got for us? I'm just going to say the title. I don't care if it ruins it for you or not. It's going to help me out. How Deadly Bird Flu Sparked Explosive Outbreaks in 2022 and Why It Matters for Global Health. So if you're not aware of anything going on in the world right now or in your local area, or one or the other, it extends to both. Throughout the last decade, the global spread of bird flu has been a growing concern in Canada around the world, not just Canada. but It is a global pandemic at this point. Yeah. It's crazy. But most farms managed to avoid outbreaks. The situation changed in 2022. So we're now out of 2022. When is this article from? December 17, 2022. So not that long ago. This year, a highly contagious strain of avian influenza tore across the country, hitting close to 270 farms and production facilities, sparking concern over poultry shortages and exposing workers from coast to coast to a potential deadly pathogen. So far, roughly 4.7 million domestic birds have caught the virus. That's not counting untold numbers of wild birds falling ill, whose numbers are far tougher to track. Quote, I would describe the scope as explosive and sort of all-encompassing, end quote, said Angela Rasmussen, a virologist with the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization at the University of Saskatchewan. So you know it's a good one. Quote, I mean... If it's about it farming, really- <laughs> they know their stuff. <laughs> Quote, it really is a huge problem globally, and it's here in Canada, end quote. And it's a brewing crisis on two fronts, both the global bird populations and potentially to human health. This highly infectious form of influenza virus eventually evolves to better transmit between people in the decades ahead. Eventually, it could mutate itself such that it would gain the capacity and capability to transmit from poultry to humans, says Dr. Shian Sharif, a professor of the Ontario Veterinary College at the University of Guelph in southern Ontario. And unfortunately, this sort of worst case scenario that we don't want to happen. Since 2003, a particularly deadly H5N1 avian influenza strain has led to a higher number of deaths in poultry and wild burns around much of the world, including Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and Africa. In 2014, Canada had its first detection of what's known as a highly pathogenic form of avian influenza virus linked to poultry at a farm in British Columbia. A dozen farms and production facilities wound up dealing with cases that year, according to data provided to CBC News by the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. FYI, this is a CBC article. I'm really good at citing sources midway through. It is very Canada-oriented. It is, yeah. So I'm just going to finish this. Let me just see. So far from what I heard, like just in the U.S., billions of birds have been called to make sure that this doesn't spread any further and it's actually spread to wild bird populations as well like apparently it's taking its toll on like eagles and falcons oh my god that's terrifying so it's a long article i just want to jump quickly because that's very canadian focused and i just want to jump quickly to a france it's not in french thank god because we're just like bordering fluent and not. So I'm just going to read it in English. It's France24.com. And their article is from January 13, 2023. And its title's largest global bird flu outbreak in history shows no sign of slowing. So I just wanted to take a little bit other, not a complete other side of the world, but different than North America. And this one says a highly contagious and lethal strain of bird flu has killed millions of wild and farm bird life in the past year. As global infections show little sign of slowing down, scientists, wildlife protectors, and legislators are looking for a new solution to a global pandemic. 
a lethal bird flu outbreak that has been circling the globe since 2021 peaked in Japan this week as an agriculture ministry official said on Tuesday. The country plans to cull more than 10 million chickens at risk of exposure to the virus. Flu is a common illness among wild birds, yet the H5N1 strain now sweeping Japan is uniquely contagious and deadly. It poses such a high risk to farm birds such as chickens and turkeys that a single infection on a farm condemns the entire flock to be killed. As outbreaks in Japan have reached a record high, the cull is the largest ever planned for the yearly flu season that runs from October to May. Around the globe, record-breaking death tolls due to the virus are becoming the norm. In the U.S., more states than ever before have reported instances of bird flu with an all-time high of nearly 58 million poultry affected as of January 2023. Meanwhile, Europe is in the midst of its worst ever spat, spate, spat of bird flu infections with 25,000 outbreaks on farms stretching across 37 countries from October 2021 to September 2022. Some 50 million birds have been culled across the continent, although the vast majority of poultry infections occurred in France. So yeah, next quote, dead birds everywhere. I just wanted to put that because the Canadian one was mostly focusing on Canada. This one is focusing more on what's going on. There's a lot to it. I've been hearing about it every now and then. And then when I hear about it, it's just, it's not passed to humans. So long as you're cooking your meat. So there's no real worry for us. And I don't eat chicken, so. No, exactly. So you wouldn't have noticed that. Just last week when I was at the grocery store, we were looking for chicken and the entire chicken section was empty. Like it was bizarre. Oh, really? The only thing left there was some halal chicken. So we got halal, but I'm not really a fan of how they kill that animal, but that's all that was there. And it's definitely being seen both in chicken prices as well as eggs. So you're going to see egg prices are skyrocketing right now. Well. I've been noticing that there has, because I do eat eggs. I've been noticing that they've been going up and are hard to get. And I do just want to read this part. There's a ton of wild birds also dying. In the autumn, Svalbard barnacle geese, which migrate south from their Arctic breeding ground, also started dying. I'm jumping in here, obviously, halfway through the... But I just wanted... This has to do with the wild birds that are dying. Numbers were going up by the tens, then hundreds, then more than 1,600 were confirmed dead, says Claire Smith, policy officer for UK Bird Protection charity, the RSPB. I'm giving you not a lot of context here. I just jumped right into the middle of the article. By spring, the organization estimated a third of the total population had died. Yes, among great skuas, gannets, gulls, geese, and even eagles continued through the summer by then impacting both migratory and domestic species. I didn't know this. By July, the Scottish government had closed off access to some seabird islands. There were just dead birds everywhere. Oh my god. Well, that's fun. Yeah. Oh, death. Yeah. yeah. And then just the more interactions humans have with sick birds, the higher likelihood that it does spread to humans. And you know how we handle pandemics, just glowingly. So, yeah, we, yeah. If you want to read more, obviously, like I said. I read like a quarter to half of one, like one quarter and then jumped in halfway to the other one. We'll post them up on the episode notes if you're interested to learn more because obviously there's a lot more than we're hearing and just, you know, a recap of the news when they're talking about bird flu. Probably something to keep your eye on as well as Japan. And with that, let's get on to the bigger and brighter Japanese (laughs) shadiness. Yeah, let's do that. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. 
Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, where sometimes we do back-to-back episodes. We don't always have time to come up with catchy phrases, so you get what you get. (laughs) We are your hosts, for those keeping track at home, same as the hosts of the last episodes, Taylor and Chelsea, here today to talk with you about Japanese post-World War II history with the little-known parts. Now, last episode, we went over the kind of overarching Cole's notes of what happened during the post-war era in Japan. Today, we're going to talk about some of the lesser-known stuff. I think I just need to get into it because there are a lot of things I need to talk about. Okay, and I just think it's funny that now we're doing the lesser-known stuff because I didn't know any of this stuff we found out in the last episode. Okay, let's learn some new stuff. But it's important. So first and foremost, (laughs) do you remember when Kenan came to Japan and said like, oh, you guys are giving them too much good stuff. We need to cut back. We need to do a, a course change and do austerity. Well, that actually, that period of time is known as the reverse course. Okay. That makes sense. I didn't call it that just because there's other things that happen in there that are the real reverse course. And I'm just going to get right into it, why it's called the reverse course. The CIA and U.S. military intelligence played a pivotal role in the 1947 reverse course policy shift and the subsequent end of the purge policy concerning classified war criminals. In conjunction with the Japan lobby and American corporate interests, U.S. American intelligence engaged in pressure campaigns to reverse Douglas MacArthur's policies about the Zaibatsus and civil service officials purged during the U.S. occupation. The KGB in several documents accused the CIA and SCAP of staging attacks on Japanese infrastructure, including Matsukawa derailment, in order to justify these policy changes. Do you remember those three train incidents during the Red Purge? I was just going to say... I think I remember those. Yeah, so the KGB is like, I'm pretty sure the CIA staged that. Oh, okay. Right off the bat. I don't get back to that one, so let's just remember. That one was likely done by the Yakuza. Okay, okay, because I was like, I was pretty sure that seemed like it would be Japan. And basically, all of the train incidents were probably done by the Yakuza. No no way to prove it, but they were probably false. Okay. And yeah, that's just, I could only do that part in passing because I have 14 pages of notes I got to get through. Domestically, the agency pressured the State Department and military by authoring a report titled, quote, Strategic Importance of Japan, arguing that control over Japan was invaluable as a stabilizing force in Asia, that agency being the CIA. The report warned that a hypothetical Soviet alignment of Japan, which it warned was likely with the loss of Southeast Asia, would, quote, tip the balance of the Cold War, end quote, in favor of the USSR. The report urged the State Department to make a shift from, quote, monopoly-breaking, unquote, policies towards an approach incentivizing the development of, quote, large financing and trading concerns, unquote. As part of the reverse course, thousands of conservatives and nationalist wartime leaders were depurged and allowed to re-enter politics and government ministries. In the industrial sector, plans for further antitrust actions against the remaining old Zaibatsu were scrapped. Those vertical monopolies? Turns out they didn't get rid of all and some Mm -hmm. earlier antitrust policies were partially undone. MacArthur had originally planned to break up 325 Japanese companies as Zaibatsus. How many do you think he got to, Chelsea? Well, I wouldn't have thought in the first place there were so many, but I'm going to go with one or two. He broke up 11. Okay. (laughs) So look at him go. Okay, so now I'm impressed. I set myself off to be (laughs) impressed. It's it's the plight of the pessimist. (laughs) Exactly. Expect the negative and you'll never be disappointed. Exactly, exactly. So here we are. (laughs) And in the realm of self-defense, the United States began pressuring Japan immediately to eliminate Article 9 and (laughs) remilitarize. 
To this end, SCAP established the National Police Reserve, the NPR, in 1950, and the Coastal Safety Force, the CSF, in 1952. And they later became the ground and maritime branch of the Japanese Self-Defense Force. So basically, Japan gets around. They don't have a military by having a defense force. Ah, uh, yes. Classic. SCAP also attempted to weaken the labor unions they had recently empowered, most notably issuing edicts, stripping public sector workers of their rights to go on strike. We did know that one. The biggest part we're talking about now with the reverse course are the people who got let out of military prison, the class A war criminals. There are three names that are really important. So yeah, they just said of those people that weren't killed, like they did a good job killing some of them. At one point, they're just like, no, these people actually seem important. Let's keep them around. So it really was a reverse. Yes, it was a true reverse course. Of the Class A war criminals we're going to focus on in this episode, there are three names you might recognize two of them from the last episode. Kishi Nobusuke, Prime Minister of Japan in 1960. Uh, Yoshio Kadama and Ryochi Sasakawa. Yeah, the other guy sounds familiar too. Ryochi actually doesn't come up a lot, but yeah, Yoshio Kodama, he did come up in the last episode. Just briefly though, I will cover him further. Okay. But I'm going to give you a background on who Kishi is, Kishi Nobusuke. So he has been described as the mastermind behind the industrial development of Japan's puppet state of Manchuria, or Manchukuo. Kishi had first come to the attention of the Kwangtong army officers as a rising star in the Ministry of Commerce, an industry who openly touted the policies of Nazi Germany and called for policies of industrial rationalization to eliminate capitalist competition in support of state goals, ideas that accorded with the army's idea of national defense state. In 1935, Kishi was appointed Manchukuo's deputy minister of industrial development. Kishi was given complete control of Manchukuo's economy by the military with the authority to do whatever he liked just as long as industrial growth increased. In 1936, Kishi was one of the first drafters of Manchukuo's first five-year plan. He studied all over, he even studied a little bit in Russia, and he really liked the idea of their five-year industrial plan. So he came up with five-year industrial plans for Manchuria. Manchukuo's five-year plan was intended to dramatically boost heavy industry in order to vastly increase production of coal, steel, electricity, and weapons for military purposes. In order to enact the new plan, Kishi persuaded the military to allow private capital into Manchukuo, successfully arguing that the military's policy of having state-owned corporations leading Manchukuo equals is costing the Japanese state too much money. One of the new public-private corporations founded to assist in carrying out the five-year plan was the Manchuria Industrial Development Company, established in 1937, which attracted a staggering 5.2 billion yen in private investment, making it by far the largest capital project in the entire Japanese empire. By comparison, the total annual budget of Japan's national government was 2.5 billion, so over double the annual budget. The man handpicked by Kishi to lead the MIDC, that's that company that we just said, was his distant relative and old first high school classmate, Nissan Group founder, Ayukawa Yashisuke. Oh no. And as part of the deal, the Nissan Group's entire operations were supposed to be transferred over to Manchuria to form the basis of the new MIDC. The system that Kishi pioneered in Manchuria of a state-guided economy where corporations made their investment on government orders later served as the model for Japan's post-1945 development and subsequently that of South Korea and China as well. In 1937, Kishi signed a decree calling for the use of slave labor to be conscripted both in Manchukuo and in northern China, stating that in these times of emergency, such as wars with China, which we technically were in, industry needed to grow at all costs while guaranteeing healthy profits for state and private investors. 
Starting in 1938 and continuing to 1945, about 1 million Chinese were taken every year to work as slaves in Manchukuo. The harsh conditions of Manchukuo were well illustrated by the Fushun coal mine, which at any given moment had about 40,000 men working as miners, of whom about 25,000 had to be replaced every year as their predecessors had died due to poor working conditions and low living standards. So over half of the entire slave crew had to be replaced every year because they died of horrible working conditions. So is this now what they're doing with the large population? No, that's what they're doing with the Chinese population. Like exclusively the Chinese Oh my population. god. What did I miss there? Jeez. They took a million slaves like from around China and brought them into Manchuria to work and they all basically died. Half of them would die every year. Oh my god. In Japan. Okay. Yeah. Kishi showed little interest in upholding the rule of law in Manchukuo. Kishi expressed views typical of his fellow colonial bureaucrats when he disparagingly referred to the Chinese people as, quote, lawless bandits who were incapable of governing themselves. According to Kishi's subordinates, he saw little point in following legal or judicial procedure because he felt the Chinese were more akin to dogs than humans and would only understand brute force. According to Driscoll, Kishi always used the term Manchu instead of Manchukuo, which reflected his viewpoint that Manchukuo was not actually a state, but rather just a region rich in resources and 34 million people to be used for Japan's benefit. In his later years, Kishi recalled how inhuman treatment of Chinese people became naturalized among the Japanese colonial elite, turning human beings into, quote, mechanical instruments of imperial army, non-human automatons, absolutely obedient to their Japanese masters. It's not actually stated whether in this quote, he thinks it's a good thing or a bad thing. Way to go, Japan. Like, it's, it's reflecting on it, but that, that's all I know. Like yeah. he's saying, oh yeah, we really dehumanize those people. And that's bad, right? Who knows? Just for clarification, we've backtracked from where we ended off on the last episode, right? This is back at the start. And that's why I had to cover Manchuria at the okay. beginning of the last episode. He was in charge of Manchuria once they took it over. Okay. I felt like I knew that, but I just needed to clarify. Cause yeah. No, that's fine. Sorry. I, I probably so, should like, say. There was like two. You did say, but I just was clarifying here. So there's kind of like two different things happening at once. There okay. kind of is. And I do just need to say, this is why I needed to cover Manchuria in our last episode because of this guy. Yeah. Okay. Manchukuo was a place where Manchus, Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, and Mongols would all come together to live harmoniously in Pan-Asian peace. Prosperity and brotherhood meant little to Kishi. Kishi didn't give a shit about that. Kishi only associated with other Japanese during his time in Manchukuo and did not mix socially with Chinese or other ethnic groups. Instead, Kishi's dinner companions were fellow bureaucrats, businessmen, seeking government contracts, army officers, and Yakuza gangsters. Nice. The presence of the latter was due to Kishi's involvement in the opium trade. The Manchukuo state opium monopoly needed to be distributed to move its products around the world, which in turn required contacts within the underworld in the form of the Yakuza. Additionally, Kishi used Yakuza thugs to terrorize Chinese workers in Manchukuo's factories into submission and ensure that there were no strikes caused by the long hours, low pay, and poor working conditions. Because the Kwantung army expected to settle Manchukuo with millions of Japanese to solve the problem of overpopulation to Japan. After the Manchurian incident, the army generals had sought to curtail Han Chinese migration to Manchukuo. However, Kichi reversed this policy in 1935, arguing successfully to the generals that the Yakuza would keep the Chinese workers in line and that to grow Manchukuo's in industries required cheap Chinese 
Chinese labor to be exploited. Oh my God. So he's the one who said, no, we're not actually going to settle this. We're just going to use it as a slave call. Uh, okay. At the same time, Kishi repeatedly expressed disdain for Chinese people as impure and unclean. One of Kishi's closest friends and business partners, the Yakuza gangster Yoshio Kadama, summed up his boss's thinking about the Chinese as follows. Quote, we Japanese are like pure water in a bucket, different from the Chinese who are like the filthy Yangtze River. But be careful, even the slightest amount of shit gets into your bucket, we become fully polluted. Since all the toilets in China empty into the Yangtze, the Chinese are soiled forever. We, however, must maintain our purity. That's how Kishi thinks of the Chinese. Yeah, I was just gonna say, that's a very nice poetic thought. And as a self-described, quote, playboy of the Eastern world, end quote. Kishi was known during his four years in Manchukuo for his lavish spending amid much drinking, gambling, and womanizing. Kishi spent almost all of his time in Manchukuo's capital, Xinqing, modern Changchun, China, with the exception of monthly trips to Dalian on the world-famous Asia Express railroad line, where he indulged in his passion for women in alcohol and sex-drenched weekends. This is literally right from the Wikipedia page. When not visiting the brothels of Manchuria, Kishi was demanding sex from the waitresses who served him at the expense of restaurants he patronized. When he was locked up in Sugamo prison in 1946 awaiting his trial, he reminisced about his Manchukuo years. Quote, I came so much it was hard to clean it all up. End quote. Ew. Yeah. According to Driscoll, quote, photographs and written descriptions of Kishi during this period never fail to depict a giddy exuberance, laughing and joking, while doling out money during the day and looking forward to drinking and fornicating at night, end quote. And the Japanese government loves what Kishi's doing in here so much that in 1940, Kishi enters the cabinet as a minister of commerce under a new prime minister, Hideki Tojo, less than one year later in October of 1941. Kishi and General Tojo worked closely together in Manchuria and Tojo regarded Kishi as his protege. On December 1st, 1941, Kishi voted in the cabinet for war with the United States and Britain and co-signed the declaration of war issued on December 7th, 1941. That's his history prior to getting put in jail for war crimes. He is a class A war criminal. I, I, I mean, it's not unfounded. He goes on to become prime minister. <laughs> Japan is full of surprises. For me, at least. I mean, this is all history. Not new surprises. Also, his brother ends up becoming prime minister and his grandson ends up becoming prime minister. <laughs> Good job, Japan. Next up, Yoshio Kadama. Yoshio Kadama maintained a long-ranging relationship with the Central Intelligence Agency and the Japanese right. Kodama first became relevant in an administrative role due to his established connections with the Imperial Japanese Navy High Command. One of the people involved in MacArthur's team, Willoughby, was in contact with Kodama during his imprisonment, persuading him to write his memoir called I Was Defeated, published through a CIA proprietary. After serving a year in prison, U.S. authorities decided to end legal proceedings against him and subsequently released him in late 1948, with his early release attributed to the G2's interest in him. It is speculated that Kodama struck a deal with intelligence officials in the G2 who secured his release, and U.S. officials were allegedly interested in Kodama's immense wealth and his expansive intelligence network in China, which G2 viewed as a valuable asset, particularly for the upcoming Operation Takamatsu, which is basically just clandestine activity in Sizo Arisue, in particular, head of the Kato Agency, enlisted him in building an intelligence network in North Korea and Manchuria. 
he famously, as we just talked about, was head of the opium trade in Manchuria. He also set up a racket to basically plunder all of China. He had agents all over China and they stole like all the artifacts and all the jewels and all the gold and all the diamonds and basically brought it all to Japan. When he was arrested, he's allegedly like one of, if not the richest people in Japan. And he trusted all of his money and all of his goods to the head of the Yakuza, as well as a lot of his stuff is left at the Imperial Royal Palace while he's in prison. Like, he's basically a billionaire at this time. Remind me, he comes out of prison as a war criminal and then becomes prime minister. No, no, that's, this is Yoshio Kodama. So Kishi becomes prime minister. Yoshio Kodama becomes a fixer for the LDP. He's the guy, while the Anpo protests are going on, Kishi went to Kodama and said, hey, do you have some people we could get to put this protest down? And he says, yeah, I got right-wing extremists and Yakuza members. And he spends all the money getting the Yakuza to show up to these protests and beat the shit out of protesters. Oh my god. (laughs) I'm really glad we're doing this. (laughs) So Yoshio Kodama also is just a story that the CIA, I call it the tungsten story, in a bid with the CIA to enrich himself, participated in a scheme to smuggle tungsten to U.S. defense companies in exchange for CIA money. The activities of his Kodama agency had been built up during the Second Sino-Japanese War by the Kempeitai, being heavily involved in the opiate trade. Kodama himself was involved in the IJA tungsten smuggling ring as early as 1932. Eugene Duman, who was part of the Japan lobby and who quit the agency in 1945 to support the reverse course, engineered a plan to smuggle $10 million worth of military-grade tungsten from the stores of Japanese military and Chinese sources to Pentagon defense contractors. So this guy is stealing tungsten from the Japanese government to give to the U.S. military mm-hmm. at the behest of the CIA. Kodama's network was involved with the physical process of actively moving the material with the CIA underwriting the plot, supplying some $2.8 million to facilitate the operation. The plot, however, ultimately fails due to the tungsten being too low grade and causing Duman to blackmail the agency over repayment by threatening to reveal the agency had abducted two Japanese communists and was actively involved in East Asian narcotics trade. So Kodama ends up getting to keep the money. <laughs> Oh my god. And during the 1960s Ampo protests, Nobusuke Kishi ordered his friend Yoshio Kodama to put together a force of Yakuza to protect U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower during his visit to Japan. Kodama used some hidden money in the mass mobilization to pay for the required manpower. The State Department and the U.S. Ambassador Douglas MacArthur II were actively involved in planning the mass mobilization, evidenced by MacArthur's cable to Harry S. Truman Building, which details Kodama's plan to deploy tens of thousands of Yakuza on the streets to greet Eisenhower in his plan visit. Okay, so this is connected. Yes. So he's not as innocent as I didn't think he was innocent, but No, MacArthur the second kind of seems like an absolute asshole. Yeah, and we're getting a better, clearer idea of what's okay. Yeah, and this is why I did the background first. Yes, of course. So can you imagine Eisenhower showing up in Japan, the first visit there since pre-World War II, and all there is to greet him is Yakuza Prime members. He didn't show up though. No, he didn't end up going. They canceled it. Right, right. But like he had set up for tens of thousands of Yakuza members to stop any unrest that could happen around Eisenhower if he was to show up. I don't know if I'd feel terrified or safe. 
Yeah. The LDP sent multiple emissaries to support the plan, meeting with heads of pretty much all of the huge right-wing extremist groups, as well as the Yakuza, and these were grouped all under the All Japan Council of Patriotic Organization, the Zenai Kagi, which was composed primarily of right-wing veterans and gangsters. Despite the pressure and the encouragement of MacArthur and the State Department to let the visit go ahead, the LDP ultimately decided to cancel the visit in order to avoid a repeat of the Hayward incident, which they probably made the right move. I feel like they really did. <laughs> Someone was thinking clearly. And according to historian Sterling Seagrave, Yoshio Kodama remained on the CIA payroll until the presidency of Ronald Reagan and Kodama's death in 1984. So he gets paid that entire time. I was worried he wasn't going to. Like, we don't know everything that he got paid for or everything he did. We just know some of the things that were released. Like, that's it. Well, I mean, I'm glad to hear you. Also, this is not the last time we're going to talk about Yoshio Kodama in this episode. It is the last time for now, but there's a more interesting story that comes up later that you're going to be very happy that I don't skip. Okay, good. And we're just elaborating on the war crimes in which they were released. Yes, by the CIA. These are really CIA documents. (laughs) So, and then we're just going to talk about the LDP in general. Although I guess a political party can't be a war criminal, they can sure be involved with war criminals. They sure can. Nick Caper, author of the book Japan at the Crossroads, Conflict and Compromise After Ampo, argues that Nobusuke Kishi, at the advice and encouragement of the Central Intelligence Agency, orchestrated the formation of the Liberal Democratic Party in 1955. This party continuously held power from 1955 to present day, except for a short while when it was replaced by a new minority government. LDP leadership was drawn from the elite who had seen Japan through the defeat and occupation. It attracted former bureaucrats, local politicians, businessmen, journalists, and other professionals, farmers, and university graduates. And the CIA absolutely pushed money into the LDP. Of course they did. They would give them millions to make sure that the U.S. looks good. Millions. And nobody knows when that cuts off either. Like, they might still be getting money. Nobody knows for sure. (laughs) Probably still going. And the person that they got to set up the LDP is not just Nobusuke Kishi. It is Yoshio Kodama. Yoshio Kodama is constantly in the background as the fixer for the LDP. Because of his, like, very obvious attachment to the Yakuza, he can't be a politician or prime minister, but he basically runs the party the entire time he's alive. I mean, that's like Kennedy's and the Mafia. (laughs) Sure. Not quite, but sure. Not quite, but kind of. (laughs) Next up, other propaganda activities. The CIA was involved in a multi-decade campaign to strengthen the image of the United States in Japan and promote the Japanese right. In 1954, the CIA sponsored the creation of a central intelligence agency meant to sway news reporting from Gigi Press and Kyoto News. The CIA established a program called the Psychological Strategy Plan for Japan. The goal of the plan was the manipulation of Japanese media into supporting the pro-U.S. anti-communist and pro-rearmament position to sway Japanese public opinion. The United States Information Service also confidentially financed the production of Japanese media, pouring $184 million into a program codenamed Panel D Japan. The CIA and USIS also targeted the Japanese intelligentsia, establishing magazines like Jiu. One of the CIA's greatest media assets was the Japanese media mogul Matsutaro Soriki. Matsutaro owned the influential publication Yomiyori Shimbun. Matsutaro established Japan's first private television network, Nippon Television. NTV would become a centerpiece of U.S. psychological operations in Japan. Matsutaro operated under the CIA codename Podam and Pot. 
one. Operations by Pojackpot one included a program to acquire 10 color TV receivers, which were shipped to Japan. The objective of this operation was to broadcast propaganda for the LDP ahead of the 1958 general election and demonstrate US advancements in consumer electronics. However, the sets arrived too late to be used in the 1958 election and the program visit. Shoriki also participated in a media campaign to promote nuclear power in Japan. His media organization established an exhibition to promote the benefits of nuclear power, termed Adams for Peace, after Eisenhower's speech to the UN General Assembly in 1953, and the operation was obviously fully endorsed and supported by the CIA. Probably paid for as well. So the CIA are fully why Japan relies so heavily on nuclear power, which, I mean, take it or leave it, there are good and bad involved with that, but if Japan would have just been left to its own devices, I guarantee you a country that had two nuclear bombs dropped on it would not nuclearize its power. Why? Because they really don't like nuclear weapons. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Like they saw, oh, and I don't even talk about this. Do you know the nuclear testing that happens at Bikini Atoll? No. Okay, well, it's in the middle of the ocean. You would see that famous mushroom cloud that happens in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, because it sounds familiar. Yeah. That actually leads to fallout on a fishing boat and all the fish that were caught and canned and dispersed throughout Japan. And it actually, it's a huge scandal that I'm not even going to cover, but nuclear fallout is a huge war in Japan for most of the 1950s onwards. the reason? Okay. Why are they doing this? Well, one of the reasons is the Okanagawa military base, which Japan heavily opposes. From 1955 to 2013, I believe was the stat I read. I didn't write this down. There have been over... 200,000 criminal actions done to Japanese individuals by people at the military base in Okinawa. 200,000 crimes committed by military personnel in 60 years. And they never get tried there. They get tried in the US if they want to. But like anywhere from like assault to murder. No, it's bad. Like it's been all over the map. That's bad. And the reason I laugh is because Japan is not the one to be accusing people of committing things and getting away with it. Because they're pretty but bad themselves. Let's talk about Okinawa. The CIA's influence it's- in Okinawa became relevant as it repeatedly attempted to influence the course of elections on the island. The American Friends Service Committee accused the U.S. of financing the LDP on the island to the tune of $1.8 million. This was corroborated by a secret action plan declassified in 1997, detailing covert agency plans to influence elections in the Ryukyus via the secret funding the LDP in response to an escalation of protests over reversion. More recently, after the end of the U.S. military operation in Okinawa Prefecture, the CIA continued attempts to sway Okinawa public opinion. In a document obtained via a Freedom of Information Act request, the CIA laid out a manual advising U.S. officials on how to shape Okinawa public opinion. The CIA advised U.S. officials to manipulate Okinawa pacifists' opinion by stating the military's role in humanitarian and disaster relief. This agency also advised that U.S. officials not mention military deterrence as a reason for the continued military presence on the island and deny any role of U.S. servicemen in discrimination against Okinawans. The AFSC also accused the CIA of organizing the toppling of Yukio Hatoyama's government, in large part due to its opposition to the construction of the U.S. military installations on Hanoko Bay. 
Next up, Project Artichoke. And by the way, one thing I have to bring up just because it vaguely fits in here. I didn't have time to do it though. Do you remember the Kenpei Tai, the Japanese military police? Yes. Yeah, they came up in your episode, didn't come up in mine. You would think that they were class A war criminals. I could not find a single name attached to the Kenpei Tai. All I know is that they set up like clandestine cells called Kikan. Basically, the US just said, yeah, we're going to keep these. So they might have gotten rid of some of the Kenpei Tai, but they did not get rid of their infrastructure at all. Cool. Okay. Which brings me to Project Bluebird and Project Artichoke. Project Bluebird is a division of Project Artichoke, and it was a mind control operation involving testing of human subjects with drugs meant to induce hypnosis for the right. purpose of enhanced interrogation. At the start of Project Bluebird, a team traveled to Japan in July of 1950 to test out the techniques on human subjects. The subjects used were suspected double agents. During the operation, the security office of the agency ordered the operatives to conceal and not disclose the reason for their residence and employment in Japan, using a cover explaining they were part of a polygraph work. In October of 1950, the program was expanded to include North Korean prisoners of war, with 25 subjects being selected and chosen for the role. The safe house used to perform the operation was located in Atsugi, Kanagawa. The experiments were intended to induce amnesia by the injection of drugs such as sodium amidol and other barbiturates. The team judged the experiments in 1950 as a success, causing the agency to expand and continue the program across Europe and Southeast Asia. So yay, using drugs to interrogate people. That's where it was pioneered was in Japan. Really? Have we talked about Project Artichoke before or Bluebird? I don't think we have. Oh, it must have been Behind the Bastards that I heard it. Yeah, and actually, um, there are a few episodes of Behind the Bastards that are very pertinent to this. This actually leads to the canon organ, which um, is, I'm just going to read it. News reports and declassified CIA documents have repeatedly mentioned the existence of canon organs staffed by 30 persons. The organization is also known as the Canon Agency or the Z Unit. The agency was formed according to former member Han Topong by the Counterintelligence Corp and was under the purview of the G2. Topong stated that the intelligence gathering portion of the organ answered to Alan Dulles, or Alan DeLay. Lieutenant Colonel Jack Cannon led the agency. The organization's headquarters was located at the Hongo House in Tokyo. It worked in conjunction with the Kato Agency, a clique consisting of five former Imperial Japanese Army officers. The Cannon Organ's primary focus was gathering intelligence from Communist China. So it basically set up its own CIA cell in Japan. This also read to the Kaji Wataru incident. Another incident? Yeah, another, another incident. They have a one. lot of incidents. <laughs> The CIA was implicated in the abduction of Kaji Wataru, a left-wing novelist. Wataru had worked as a re-educator concerning Japanese prisoners of war in Chongqing due to his persecution under the Showa statism. Kaji alleged that he was abducted by U.S. military intelligence officers in the Kanagawa neighborhood of Kuganuma, and then confined in a facility to Yokohama on the night of November 25th, 1951. He was then extensively interrogated, accused of being a spy for the Soviet Union, and was pressured to become a double agent for the U.S. intelligence. Kaji was physically tortured and interrogated over the next few days. After Kaji was repeatedly physically abused by the Canon Agency, he attempted suicide by drinking a bottle of household cleaner. Before his suicide attempt, he wrote a testament to his friend Uchiyama Kanzo, a bookstore owner in Shanghai. At the time, Kaji was suffering from chronic tuberculosis and was giving medical treatment to assist in his recovery from a suicide attempt. Kaji was then moved to a second safe house in the Shibuya ward. Then he was moved to Chigasaki and then to Okinawa. That's the Wataru incident. I just wanted to say it because it's terrible. Like that's some of the terrible things they're doing. And I think we're going to have to cut this here because we have more to go, a lot more to go. And this is still the short version of this. I've been Taylor here with Chelsea. You'll get more of it next week. Thank you all for listening. See you next week. What? Just say bye. Oh, I... <laughs>
Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes, or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh